They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 72 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. I'm Aaron Harris and I'm your host, Guest today is David Sanchez. He's the frontman, singer, uh, guitarist, lyricist for the thrash metal band Havoc. And uh, most of you know, if you've listened to this uh, very much, or if you know me personally, that I am not exactly a metal aficionado. I don't quite get hip hop either. Um, I like kind of some metal, but I just haven't been able to get into it to the degree that a lot of Mises Caucus people and uh, other libertarians seem to, but I'm learning and uh, really tempted to check more of it out after talking to David, a uh, really interesting guy. And uh, I, I don't know if he, I think he specifically, you know, doesn't have a political label for himself. He doesn't like those. Uh, his uh, Twitter handle, I think is David Freethink. Um, that'll be, uh, I'll have the link to his Twitter handle and his podcast on the show notes page at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 72. But uh, it was just really uh, neat to meet someone who is creative, who comes at things from kind of a different perspective and has kind of arrived at some of the same conclusions about society, uh, especially given what's happened over the last couple of years. I think it's really exciting what we're doing with the Mises Caucus that we're starting to uh, attract interest from people who are kind of outside the LP, who have also, you know, kind of uh, started to wake up about things, or maybe they have been aw awake for a, a long time and are, are just now kind of seeing that there may be an alternative to the two-party thing, uh, to, uh, you know, th that there's a different way to go about politics and that you know, without explicitly talking about it, kind of the, you know, it's the Ron Paul model of being as bold as possible, you know, not really, you know, catering to or pandering uh, for votes, but just uh, staying truthful, talking about freedom, sticking to that. And uh, so, you know, guys like Tim Poole, I think, are kind of in that sphere who are kind of coming around. And uh, I think what we're building here with the Mises Caucus is going to get much bigger uh, than the LP and uh, what we're doing now, but it's going to take an LP that uh, is equipped to uh, operate in, in a bold way and uh, to not compromise on liberty. And so, you know, I'm not saying David Sanchez is going to be a part of that, but I am saying that uh, I, I'm glad that uh, I live in a world where there are guys like him who are really great in their field and who are also 
starting to wake up about really important things. So I think you'll enjoy my conversation with David Sanchez. Angela McArdle uh, suggested that I have you on the show, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. How are you doing today? Yeah, doing well. Happy where, to be Thanks for having where, me. Yeah, where, where are you uh, podcasting from today? Denver, Colorado. Okay. All right. We've got stuff to talk about Denver-related. Uh, we helped uh, the Mises Caucus a little bit with the decriminalized Denver thing. Uh, so uh, we helped just a little bit, but we gave some money and some volunteers there at the very end and it passed by just a few votes. So uh, a lot of people did a lot more than us, but the 1% that we did actually might've made a difference. So that, now, that's was good. That criminalizing uh, the greenery or the fungus? No, the psilocybin. Yeah. Okay, so, um, and I'm told, awesome. thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm told that uh, I don't know if it's the same exact group or roughly the same coalition, I think they're going for the whole same thing in Colorado um, sometime soon. So if and when that happens, um, we're going to be involved. And so we'll definitely let you know. Yeah. Uh, Anything I can do to help that along. Yeah. I probably like a lot of people listening to this. I don't believe in the war on drugs. I think it's a totally failed experiment and it's, it's nothing but bad news for everyone. Yeah. It, It is, it is all around. We could do, yeah, you could have a TV network just dedicated to exposing how bad that is for so many people. Um, I like your shirt. That's Tesla, right? Oh, yes. Tesla the man, not the car. Not the car, uh, which is uh, an important distinction. Um, so you are in a uh, – I'm, I'm not a metal guy, but your thrash metal is your genre. Am I right on that? Yeah, right on the and, and so your thrash metal, you're into – libertarian ish politics at least and you wear a tesla t-shirt so you're a free thinker obviously and i think that's your even your one of your twitter handles somewhere so like where did that come from how did you uh have always been that way did something happen uh why are you one of us i guess well even before <laughs> i've never really mentioned this in an interview but this is very real even before getting like philosophical about the ideas of freedom and liberty and free thinking and questioning authority and stuff. I got into trouble a lot when I was a kid in school. Um, it, it got so brutal at one point that they gave me my own desk in the principal's office. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. In junior high school, they gave me my own desk in the principal's office and I got to be friends with the principal. He was actually pretty cool. Um, but you know, what really cracked my brain open, especially when I was an adolescent, I must have been like a freshman or sophomore in high school, was getting really into George Carlin. George Carlin really cracked my brain wide open about certain ways the world works and thinking for yourself and questioning things and questioning authority and just being a better critical thinker. That was Mm -hmm. like the thing that really started things snowballing for me. I mean, the way I was brought up was a factor as well, but George Carlin and then started reading books by like Carl Sagan. Um, you got into philosophy, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, yep. Stoic philosophy. And uh, yeah, just, just being a fan of, of Carlin and Frank Zappa. And, you know, there's plenty of comedians that are actually better truth tellers than anything you're ever going to see on uh, corporate news networks. So yeah, um, it started at a very young age, but then Carlin really made it take off as far as I 
I remember I was kind of a Reagan kid uh, through the eighties. And so when I was like an early teenager started getting into comedy, like Carlin kind of bothered me a little bit because he was liberal on some things, but some things he said, I was like, I was like, Oh, I agree with that. And so like, he was one of the first sort of public figures that kind of showed me that you don't have to be in one tribe or another. Um, and, And so, and so that from you know from that step to being a libertarian is kind of a a a pretty natural thing because a lot of people i think crave that security and i'm not criticizing it it's natural you know of being in a tribe and they think that if we're if i'm not in a big tribe then i'm in trouble so i i always love people who are willing to to risk that and go out and you know now we're forming our own little tribes but uh uh, it, it, it's interesting. You said you were a troublemaker in school. Like I was, I was like a model student and like always like the top of my class and all that. But like in my head, I noticed all the inconsistencies and just, and it really, it did. I had some, uh, mental health issues kind of as a result of like repressing some of that knowledge that like the rest of society is kind of sick in some ways. Um, and so I always, looking back, I admire the kids like you who were, <laughs> who were able to, um, sort of express that outwardly. Um, so, but, but that's, what's great about the, not to plug the Mises caucus too much, but we have all kinds of different people in the caucus. So, uh, coming at, at it from different backgrounds, but coming at that same love for Liberty, I think is really cool. And, um, like I say, I'm not a, I'm not much into metal, but I was listening to some of your stuff. Um, I think the V album, uh, which a lot of the track titles, like the first one, Post Truth Era, second track, Fear Campaign. Let, let's just jump right into that. Like the how, where the lyrics for that come from. And I think it's a it's a really good mix of uh, those lyrics with your sound in in today. So for someone who's not, into this music at all. Like I really have enjoyed what I've listened to so far just because of that coming together. Thank you. Um, I think it's important to note that our last record V came out uh, May day, May 1st, 2020. And the entire thing was wrapped up. We were all done recording everything September of 2019. Well before we ever heard of COVID-19. So Mm -hmm. people heard songs like fear campaign and, and some of these other tracks that are on V, um, they automatically assumed that it was all written about COVID stuff. It was written about lockdown. It was written about propaganda re- revolving around this, uh, you know, supposed virus. And um, <laughs> it was all just, it was all written before. Right. So I was just, uh, what I've been doing for the last about 10 years, I'd say, is I see some stuff. I see some writing on the wall for certain subjects. And I, I see many things as threats to liberty and threats to um, our autonomy and, and our true potential to thrive. There are genuine enemies of progress that are, are trying to rule over us. That that's There's no secret. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's literal fact. I mean, a lot of this stuff is out there in the open, that there are people that wish to dominate you. And um, I've been singing and writing songs about this stuff for about 10 years and a lot of metal bands talk about murder and war and the devil and stuff like this but 
there's already so many bands doing that. It dawned on me about a decade ago. Like, I don't care about that stuff. I want to write stuff I care about. So I, I write a lot about liberty and critical thought. And uh, <clears throat> I, I think V had a lot of lyrics on it that have sadly wound up being very prophetic. Um, right. Say the same about our last few records. But uh, for instance, the song Fear Campaign was just like shockingly prophetic. The chorus of the song says they use fear to control you. Yeah, that, that pretty much sums up the last two years in this country and most of the countries on this planet, at least in the Western world. Yeah. And I think uh, it's interesting. I, I didn't know that. I, I didn't really look at the dates when you suggested I listened to the album. And but, you know, going back to like guys like Carlin and uh, other comedians, uh, you know, Dave Chappelle is another guy that I love. Like they're always just like a little bit ahead of things and they kind of, they're kind of the canaries in the coal mine. And so a good musician, a good lyricist to me is kind of the same thing of like a lot of times people hear the word like profit and they think it's like predicting the future. Well, sometimes it's not so much the future as like, they just realize what's already happened before everybody else does. So exactly. So like, and you said uh, you went back 10 years and uh, one of the songs I found that was older is the give me liberty or give me death song. So that was, was that one of your first ones that kind of had a political theme? Yeah, I think so. Um, That the record that that song is on is called unnatural selection and the artwork for it is in the poster. um, A crazy scientist dosing the whole world. Imagine that speaking of prophetic <laughs> yeah yeah he's not your character in that album is not named fauci is he no uh, <laughs> put some glasses on him maybe right yeah maybe if he had contacts <laughs> um but give me liberty give me death um was on unnatural selection and that's the album where things really started clicking for me i think it was largely because i started reading so many books when i was about 20 years old i figured out like something clicked in my brain and I realized I'm way more stupid than I want to be. So I started reading books and uh, <laughs> that changed uh, the way I view the world. Obviously it, it made me, I think more intelligent. It expanded my vocabulary. It made me question things even more than I already did. And it gave me a, a more um, solid foundation for where my questions are coming from and, and why I believe what I believe. And one of the things about my beliefs, and I think that it's wise to do this, is question them. I question my own beliefs on a regular basis. I I have to think, like, why do I believe this? If it doesn't make sense, I need to figure out something different. But if it makes sense and I still have a good reason to believe this thing, and it's backed up by evidence, uh, experience, and anything else that (laughs) warrants it being believed in, um, I, I hold on to that stuff. Stuff that doesn't make sense anymore, I'm more than happy to discard and and replace it with with something new. Yeah. I'm always open to my mind being changed when presented with new information. I think that's that's a thing I've known, and I don't know if you identify as a libertarian, and I'm not trying to uh, uh, make you do so. But like one thing I've noticed about my fellow libertarians is kind of that same thing that we're kind of obsessed with consistency, and so for that. Uh, at the same time, in some ways we can be, I think we can sound very closed minded, but we're also very open minded in the sense that 
we are looking for ways to challenge our own assumptions and making sure we're consistent. And so most of the ideological arguments that libertarians have, it always comes down to, are you being consistent with, you know, the basics of libertarianism, which is, you know, don't hurt people, don't take their stuff. Um, you know, let people speak, uh, uh, if, uh, uh, you know, you don't have to let people speak in your living room, but if you want to go to their living room to make them stop speaking, that's really bad. So that's one thing I like about libertarians, but that makes us kind of seem weird to the rest of the world is that sort of obsession with that consistency. So was it, you said something clicked in your head that made you feel you were stupid or not as uh, smart as you wanted to be. What, what was that? Do you remember? Uh, just in general, you know, okay. I realized like school didn't, I, I knew this when I was in high school that they weren't teaching me a bunch of things that I should know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, through reading books, watching documentaries, learning about some history that they don't teach you about in school, for instance, you know, the federal reserve is not actually a government institution. Yep. Uh, there, there's banks even above the federal reserve. There's a, basically an international world banking cartel. Um, you know, Pearl Harbor, there's lies around that. The Gulf of Tonkin, there's lies around that. 9-11, there's lies around that. Um, and, you know, realizing that war is big business. It's not just for, you know, fighting for our freedoms. It's largely to enrich a very few amount of people at the expense of murder and death yeah. and destruction. Uh, these are talk- things from not only reading books but watching documentaries and and this kind of stuff like really made me wake up out of my my indoctrination Mm -hmm. so you mentioned basically 12 years of obedience training yeah you're exactly right uh you don't have to most of the people listening to this will will uh agree with that and i think that as we see the debate around covid like you know, uh, that, that conditioning is very strong and you see that come out in people of like, wear your mask. Well, masks don't work. Well, you should wear your mask. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, it's amazing that people think that way, but, uh, it's no mistake that they do. So what you, you mentioned got into philosophy. So who did you, was that one of your early reading interests and, and, uh, what, uh, uh, schools of thought you mentioned stoicism too. Let's, let's go down that path a little bit. And then I want to get back to music yeah stoicism has been kind of a staple in my life even since before i knew what that word meant Mm -hmm. or knew that it was a philosophy or knew any of the philosophers themselves um just how i was kind of raised um i think that with stoicism largely what it is is you take inventory of the things you can control and the things you cannot control the things you cannot control you just got to cut them loose and let those things go and the things you can't control you do your best with them and a a large facet of the stoic philosophy also is gratitude and i was always taught that to to be grateful and the more grateful you are i think the more happy you are and there's a a great little placard that's (laughs) at my old house where i used to live and i grew up and I loved seeing it every day before leaving the house. It says happiness is the choice. Mm-hmm. And I think that's largely true. 99% of it is what you make of it. So if your life sucks, it's because your mindset sucks. Yeah. You know, and, and there's, there's people that have much less than us that have made themselves into much greater things than, than we 
typically dream of. And I don't yeah. mean you and I, I mean, anyone listening to this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, I think, uh, Victor Frankel is a, a psychiatrist, uh, and he, his book, man's search for meaning is probably one of my favorite books, most influential in my life. And basically the, he, he's like, well, they can take away all your freedoms, but they can't take away your freedom on how to react to the, right. to all that, you, you know? So that's the one thing they can't take away from you. And another thing that, uh, uh, one of my, uh, professors, uh, from college way back, he was actually a philosophy professor, uh, and a libertarian. And, uh, a, a couple of years ago, I reconnected with him cause I found out he basically lived in the next neighborhood over from mine. He, his name is William Irvin. Um, and I'll send you some link to him, but he's written a lot about the Stoics, and uh, I've read at least one book of his, I think maybe one and a half. Uh, and another thing the Stoics do is the, the kind of to expand on the gratitude thing is you look at the things you're grateful for in your life and you imagine, or you, you think about the fact that they're not always going to be there. Like with uh, our dog, a lot of times I look at our dog and like, well, she's not going to be around in 15 years. And so that, you know, uh, just increases the, the gratitude I have, uh, in the moment. And that, that is a, that's a very, uh, that's a good, uh, trick, uh, uh, to learn. Yeah, it really is. It makes you live more immediately and appreciate mm. what you've got. Uh, realizing that your, your life is finite and that everything is finite. Mm. It really uh, puts things in perspective. And I love that about stoic philosophy. Mm. Let's, uh, let's, get back into talking about music and then because it's got a, a really big current events uh, uh, twist to it as to what's happened in the music industry the last couple of years. But yeah, I've, I've thought a lot about music recently. Um, I had a, a, a health issue a few years ago and it kind of got me out of the habit of playing music in the last few uh, months I've gotten back into it. I was telling you right before we went on that, you know, I've got, built my calluses back up and my left hand uh, so I can do the bass and not, you know, not shred my fingers. Um, and I think about the, it, it was the music around, I was 13, 14, 15, that kind of crystallized my taste. So, you know, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, the band, uh, you know, uh, Hendrix, uh, Clapton, those guys. Um, who was it for you? Uh, what, when did you start becoming aware of music? And who did you, who's that, you know, constellation of musicians that, uh, that when you think of why you're into music, who are those people? Well, the band that really made me fall in love with music and inspired me to pick up a guitar in the first place is Metallica. Old Metallica, like completely changed my life. It, it totally changed the trajectory of my entire existence. <laughs> yep. Um, you know, I, I, fell in love with their old music and um, started getting into a bunch of other bands that are similar. But nowadays my influence, musical influences come from a lot of different places, way more eclectic than they ever were when I was younger. Um, I really love experimental, like weird avant-garde music. I like mm -hmm. a lot of jazz, a lot of classical music. I love flamenco and gypsy. Yeah. Jazz. Um I'm also a big fan of like big band swing. I yep. love funk. Funk's one of my favorite things ever to listen to. I like new wave. I like disco stuff. I, I like a lot of different music that I 
didn't know about when I was a kid. And say what you want about Spotify, anyone, but I owe a lot of my musical knowledge to Spotify. Suggest mm-hmm. things. I would like this band and look up what other bands sound like this. And I would discover, you know, just go down infinite rabbit holes, discovering new artists that I otherwise would have never found because it would be more work to seek them out. It it was work for me. Like I, you know, I, I graduated high school in 93. So for me, it was like reading guitar magazines and hearing Eric Clapton mention, you know, Robert Johnson in an interview and, you know, hearing Bob Bob Dylan with Woody Guthrie. And so I I would have to go to the, to the bookstore. I, I lived right next to, you know, right, uh, adjacent to the downtown in my little street. And so there was a bookstore newsstand and a library. So I would get the guitar magazines at the one place, find out the bands I should like, and then go to the library and say, do you have this music? Yeah. <laughs> I remember so, that back in the day too. Yeah. Uh, and to me, I almost uh, here, here I sound like an old guy again. Like I, I, and I'm not criticizing young people because they, they're obviously doing it, but like, to me that it almost makes it that's part of what makes it special for me because I couldn't do it at a click and, and, and find my way from, uh, you know, Eric Clapton to Robert Johnson in 30 seconds, I had to wait two weeks for, for the CDs to come in and stuff. So, right. um, so what was it about Metallica? Um, like how old were you? When was that? And like, I mean, I, I can guess, but like, I'd like to hear you talk about it. What was it about them? you know, sonically, lyrically attitude that, that grabbed you and made you want to go that extra step and not just like chill out to it or, you know, use it uh, as an emotional uh, tool, the way a lot of people just look at music, but to then make that your hobby and then your, their, your livelihood. Well, I was 13 when I picked up a guitar. So I must've been like 11 or 12 when I first started listening to metal and metallica and i remember watching they they have this great live video called live shit binge and purge Mm -hmm. and it's pretty epic and classic and i remember watching that watching them just play in front of an arena full of people and all of the people losing their minds and everyone's head banging and having fun and the music super heavy and fast and loud and watching that i was like i think that looks like the most fun thing to do i need to learn how to do that (laughs) so i told my my parents i wanted to get a guitar and they helped me rent a guitar and an amp while i was first taking lessons because they were like i don't know if he's actually going to take this serious and i don't blame them for that you know renting a guitar and amp is better than spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on that stuff but i i started taking lessons and learning a little bit. And when I first started playing guitar, that's all I did. Yeah. I did my guitar all the time, every chance that I got. And I started Havoc a couple of years later and kind of the rest is history. I started writing music, jamming with other people and writing my own songs. And it just developed and blossomed into what it is today. And at this point we've toured with a lot of legendary bands that, I used to listen to um, just as a fan, you know, just falling in love with metal. And now I've toured with them and, and partied with them and hung out with them and have yeah. some of their numbers. It's crazy. Why do you think you 
picked guitar rather than bass or drums? And what was the first guitar you saved up for, or, you know, the first guitar you wanted and that you owned and fell in love with? Well, I did consider playing bass at first, but my mom is a classically trained guitar player. And he was like, well, just learn guitar. And then like, if you need to play bass, you can figure it out from there. Right. That's how I, that's how I did it. I played at church and I played guitar starting around 15 or 16. But if the bass player couldn't make it that week, they're like, here, here's the bass. And so I learned on the job that way. Yeah. Uh, By fire. Yep. (laughs) I did consider drums, but they're so expensive and so loud. So that was out. Uh, Guitar was simple, tiny. You could take it with you everywhere. So what did your mom think about, uh, she's, you said flamenco? Um, is yeah, that- she's a classical guitarist. She used okay, to, classical. Yeah, she used to like win competitions and stuff when she was a okay. kid. Well, there's a lot of, obviously it's the same instrument and there's a lot of overlap, but, you know, coming from, you know, I kind of learned just from listening to records and tablature, but, and, and I, so what did she think about you liking metal and how much, were you able to, to, to learn from her? <laughs> well, she didn't mind the metal stuff. She actually okay. found a lot of it just as interesting as I did. It may be not quite as interesting, but uh, early on, she taught me a few things like about natural harmonics and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, the best way to fret things or taught me about vibrato. Although vibrato on a, on a classical guitar, is quite a bit different because you yep. wiggle your hand side to side horizontal. Whereas on a electric guitar, you're going vertical, mm-hmm. but uh, she taught me a, a handful of tricks early on. And she, she wound up eventually liking a lot of the bands that I was showing her. I was making her listen to. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I see. I, I again, uh, another thing we mentioned right before we came on is uh, not only classical stuff, but uh, I'm a big bluegrass fan, and so guys like Tony Rice, and even like, you know, before that, a mandolin player named Bill Monroe. Like, there's a lot of, you know, how fast they play and the the pick techniques and stuff is is very similar to a lot of metal stuff uh, that I know and rock stuff. What was your What was the fr- I think I interrupted you. What was the first guitar that you uh, you know, really latched onto and was your baby. Oh yeah. Um, the first one that I really latched onto that was my baby was a Gibson Explorer mm-hmm. and Gothic Explorer. It's got like a Les Paul 58 neck on it. So it's a different neck than a traditional Gibson Explorer. Um, but that thing, I played it every show, played it every day for like five years straight. Yeah. That's classic. Do you still have it? I do still have it. Okay. And they've gone way up in price. I got that thing for like 700, maybe 750 bucks. And nowadays they go for quite a bit more than that. Yeah. Guitars. It's funny, you know, if they're good guitars and, and people like them. So like, not only is it like, does a famous person play one, but like, if it's good, it's amazing how like, look at pre-war Martin, you know, guitars that bluegrass players play. It's, it's more expensive than my house, but uh, also we have the federal reserve to thank for the price tag too. Right. The inflation. Uh. Yeah. And you know, it was nice that they sold us all on the fed, not you and I, we weren't even alive, but <laughs> the people on the idea that they'll make sure that inflation doesn't get out of control. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's funny. Even today you'll like, 
you you read a news story and they're like uh you know the fed uh inflation targets and you know keeping things under control it's like oh haven't you paid attention for the last hundred years um so um there's a million kids who pick up a guitar and not many who are able to um you know, get to where you are, where you, I, I understand you, you know, you have, you're not Metallica yet, but you're, uh, can headline some smaller tours and fairly, you know, maybe mid-sized venues. Um, that's what Angela told me. So if I'm wrong, blame it on Angela, but how do you, what, uh, how did you, you know, again, the dedication to believe you can do it, the hard work, like, um, why do you think that you were one of the ones who it didn't just stay a hobby for you? Well, I think it was largely the hard work, but also having a support system. Like my parents were super supportive of it. And, uh, you know, when I first started it and I told them like, Hey, I want to be a touring musician. I don't want to go to college. I was 17. And both of my parents were pretty much like, that's totally fine. But if you want to be a touring musician and like make this a career, that's all right. Just do it. Mm -hmm. if that's your decision, just actually follow through and do it, make it happen. So I kind of took that baton and ran with it as hard as I could. And it's been a long time now. I I started the band when I was 15. I'm 33 now. So I've been in this band for most of my life. So when did you, when was your first uh, paid gig and when, what did that feel like? And how did you tell me how you got, uh, you know, guys to play with you, you know, the lead up to that first paid gig. And when, when was that? So when did you know, Hey, I can actually convince people to give me money to do this. <laughs> I think the first time that we made money was probably a door deal. Probably okay. got just based on how many people we brought into the venue and convincing other people to play with us. <laughs> uh, I guess, I started the band with a guy that played drums in my high school who was also a huge Metallica fan. He knew how to play a bunch of their songs on drums. I knew how to play a bunch of their songs on guitar. So we would get together after school and play these songs. And eventually wound up that I would show him like, hey, I made these couple riffs. Check this out. Put some drums to it. And let's, let's play like, like our own stuff. And that's kind of how things started. But I, I think it's a lot easier to convince other people to join up with your musical project when you have recordings and mm-hmm. or they, they see you live. So you either got to record something or you got to play out. Yep. It, it's hard to just convince somebody to join your band without them being able to hear or see it. <laughs> yeah. So what's it like, uh, you know, when you do a paid gig, uh, That that's got to be a just a good feeling. And also like, how does that affect your playing and your creativity to, to start getting feedback, not of, Oh yeah, I heard, you know, you gave me a CD and I kind of liked it, but like to get that more visceral uh, tactile feedback from people. Well, I mean, getting paid to play in the beginning is really, really exciting. And then it turns into going on tour and then getting paid enough to not lose money on the tour. That's really exciting. And then it turns into going on tour and getting paid enough that you get to come home and put money in your pocket. And that's 
you know, a huge hurdle to get over. But when you finally get to that point, you're like, yes, like we can actually make this a career. We, we can make this our job. This is what we do for a living. And that's, uh, it takes a long time to get to that step. I can, I can attest to that. Maybe there's other means of doing it faster, but we built our whole thing like a pyramid. It's not built on stilts. We didn't go from zero to a hundred overnight. Mm-hmm. We, it's been a very slow burn. So our, our fan base can never just get like the rug can never get pulled out from under us, so to speak. Whereas these bands that go from zero to a hundred, they might disappear just as quick as they came up, but that's not the case with Havoc. So, uh, so, so did you, I haven't looked into this part of it, but, uh, uh, and I know the, uh, so when, when, when was your first, uh, paid gig, uh, about what year? Probably like 2005, 2006. Okay. So a lot, the music industry has changed so much in my lifetime, um, and I, I, I love hearing people have so many different stories of how they can make it work. So did you seek a record deal? Did you get one? How did you, uh, how did you start at, you know, the business side of things? And, uh, if, tell me if there's any, uh, how the state, uh, and government kind of affect how you, uh, run the business side of things. Well, um, we did seek a record deal. We, we sent um, a demo with like a, a press kit, some photos, bio, list of accomplishments, tour dates we've done, stuff like that, reviews. We, sent, we, we put them all into old cereal boxes. That's how we would ship stuff out because they were cheap and we already yep. had them, you know. So we sent a CD, a T-shirt, some stickers, and a, a bio and all that kind of stuff. We sent it out to a bunch of labels and eventually – got a couple of them to hit us back and say, Hey, we want to sign you guys. And we kind of just went back and forth, deliberated between the two different contracts and eventually settled on one. And uh, that's how our first three uh, real records came out. And then later we, we switched labels, but uh, yeah, we, we solicited a a deal. We weren't just like found miraculously. We Mm -hmm. worked to, to get there. Yeah. And uh, as far as government intervening with, with business in the music industry, I would Pre, say pre-COVID, pre-COVID. We're going to talk about COVID, but uh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Pre-COVID, I mean, some of the tax stuff is a little bit complicated when you play in different states or different countries. Uh, yeah, they, that can definitely get a little weird. That's different states. It's not the United States government doing that yeah. all the time, but. That complicates things a bit. And then there's also certain laws that I, I think are really stupid. Like if we, we play in a bar and it's 21 plus kids that are 19, 20 years old can't come to the show. Like mm. just put giant X's on their hands with permanent markers and don't give them alcohol. And if you see right. them, alcohol, kick them out. Like, right. <laughs> this isn't that complicated. Yeah. Or, or yeah. better yet, lower the drinking age to at least 18 right like sure yeah <laughs> yeah if you can sign yourself up to die in a war or shoot a yeah. bordo and uh, buy a house and sign a contract i think you should be able to have a sip of beer to have a beer at a at a show uh yeah 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 that, that is something that i would love to see change in our lifetime and but. that's a because that's for band for any band especially um 
you know, on the way up new acts, like it's essential that you get, you know, it's always teenagers that start to create the buzz around you. It's teenagers and, you know, people who haven't kind of started their, you know, real adult lives yet. So to, to have, and for a band like yours, like I would imagine for most music, at least all the music I grew up on, like being there to see it is such an added element. So like, that's actually really affecting your livelihood and your ability to sort of catch fire to say that, you know, basically 16 to 21 year olds can't even, you know, can't even see it. Yeah. Because Yeah. Yeah. And those people that are young, they, they become fans for life. You know, yep. might be broken young right now, but uh, 10 years later, they're going to have a, a good job and still be following you. Yep. And th that's not all coming from like a, we need to absorb as many fans as possible. But yeah. at the end of the day, it's kind of what you're trying to do, especially when you go on tour to make money. You're just mm -hmm. putting out music for the love of it. That's all good and fine. But when you're trying to make a career and make a living out of it, you, you want more butts in the seats. Yeah. So, and I, I'm not asking for numbers on this uh, or even percentages, but uh, I've always heard that that's where the money comes from. E even with, you know, only like the very, very top guys like Metallica or Tom Petty to name two we've mentioned. Those are the only guys who like get like mega rich from like recordings, right? Like most right. everybody else. And even them, they make tons of money on if they do it right. The touring has always been the bread and butter. Am I right? Yeah. Touring is absolutely where we make our money. So these last two years have severely crippled, not just us, but tons of artists that are used to making their money on the road. Because back in the day, you had bands that would put out two records a year or just mm -hmm. one every year for like a decade straight. This is in the 70s, in the early 80s. People had to buy a record if they wanted to listen to it. Yep. Otherwise, they'd have to wait listening to the radio station you know, for three hours to maybe play it. Yep. People just went out and got your record. They had to pay for it. They, they, they didn't have Spotify's of the world paying people 0 0.003 cents per yep. listen of your song. It was somebody likes your band. They're going to go spend $10 to buy the album. Yep. So back in the day, you could not even tour and make a shitload of money mm -hmm. just making records, making studio albums. And this is back in the day where uh, a, a record label would give you a bunch of money. and They wouldn't necessarily – it wasn't standard practice yet to keep all of that money, uh, withhold your royalties to pay themselves back for the recording. Mm -hmm. Now that that's totally standard. Yeah. So people get this misconception that at least with what I'm familiar with and most of the bands that I'm familiar with, you know, how things work, the label doesn't give you money to go record. They loan you money to yeah. go record. Here's, here's $30,000, go make an album. And then when it sells like hotcakes, the first $30,000 that you were supposed to get in royalties, we'll just keep that to pay ourselves back. Yeah. So all it really is is an interest-free uh, loan. Yeah. Whereas back in the day, that wasn't necessarily the case. They, they'd give a band, you know, $200,000, and it would cost them 100000 to make the record. They'd split the other 100000 so they could all, yeah. like, take a few months off and actually go make a record and survive. Yeah. And things are not like that anymore. So streaming really uh, – not streaming, sorry, touring 
mm-hmm. really is where everything's at for us. So the fact that the last couple of years happened just yeah. absolutely devastated the industry. And it devastated a lot of industries and restaurants. Tons of them are never coming back. But the, the entertainment industry, live entertainment, first thing to go. And yep. it's be the last thing to fully come back. Yeah. So let, let's, I really want to get into this because, um, you know, we, we had, uh, 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 a couple of people who made a documentary who are Mises caucus members in California called the unseen. And, uh, they focused on, uh, restaurant owners, uh, I think four or five different restaurant owners in California, uh, of the first few months of COVID and, you know, what the government did to them and, and their efforts to stay alive. And so that's, was heartbreaking, but also very interesting. And like, I always like hearing people's stories, not again, I don't like it, but I think it's so valuable to hear the stories of how the state affects how people just, again, want to make a living. And I, from what I've heard, like, uh, there is, uh, I, I, I will say what I've heard, but like, I, I would imagine there's been a divergence of opinion as to how, people in the music industry, both on the artist side and the venue side have responded to COVID and like what they've said publicly maybe versus what they've, uh, what they really think. So let, like, let's get into that. So you, you start, um, right before COVID you have your album, the Havocs V album, right? Yeah. That's ready. You've spent months on it. It's great. You put it, it's done. You're probably got your tour lined up. I would imagine, and then they start canceling NBA games and telling everybody they have to stay inside. So what happened from that moment? That must've been like a Holy crap moment for you. Right. Oh yeah. We were literally supposed to start touring the day the album came out on May 1st, 2020. Mm-hmm. And we, we found out, I don't know, four weeks before, maybe a little less that the tour was not going to take place. So because everybody probably everybody calls you and says, "Hey, we're they're, they're shutting us down in Kansas. Um, we can't play in Ohio." So it must those dominoes must have fallen pretty quickly. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we we halfway expected it. Uh, yeah. We we definitely held off on confirming our merch order of t shirts. Yeah. Well, that's good. Cool. <laughs> we were like, "This is all the stuff we want." We got the invoice ready and everything. We were like, "But let's not print those yet." <laughs> Because we don't know what's going to happen. And I'm glad we did because everything got canceled. And remember when it was two weeks to flatten the curve? Yep. The, yep, worst, the hardest part of the first two weeks is the first two years. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were supposed to go to Europe as well. Uh, after that U.S.-Canada run that was supposed to happen in May, we were supposed to go to Europe, I think, in June, June or July. And that was going to be awesome. We were going to play a bunch of festivals out there, which is always a great time and, and you know, get, gets us in front of a lot of people that normally would never come see us because they just happened to be at the festival. So you could easily argue that, that our business was injured and disrupted by this whole thing. And not, not just financially, but like l- other measures of success were also uh, inhibited, but it's, this is not just all about us. This is, this is globally. This is everyone. I mean, there's some cities where I think 40% of independent restaurants shut down and are never going to come back. Yep. 
we're talking about millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people's lives and dreams absolutely destroyed permanently mm-hmm. because of government intervention. The virus did not shut people's businesses down. The virus did not make your kids wear masks. The virus did not do any of this stuff. The governments did this stuff to the people. And that's a big distinction that I think a lot of uh, what we would call normies don't see. They don't understand that. Oh, the whole world shut down because of the virus. No, the whole world shut down because of governments overreacting to a virus where the average age of death is 82 years old. Yeah. The average age of death is people that already escaped death and cheated death. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and and you know, my you know, my sister who's 40 almost died from it and like everybody knows somebody who's been affected, but again, uh, you have to think in terms of trade-offs. Like if we, you know, how many people die in car wrecks every year? What 30, 40, 50,000 in the states. So by the same logic, we should all be walking to work in the grocery store all the day because that's the that's the attitude that the government took to it yeah. was zero COVID fatalities is our goal. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, Mother Nature is not going to cooperate with that, as we've seen it with New Zealand and Australia and even Taiwan, who I have uh, uh, my wife's family is from Taiwan and I love Taiwan and they kept uh, COVID out. Uh, they're an island nation, so they kept it out for a long time. But guess what? It eventually made its way there because that's how nature works. And people, you say that, you know, in, in the beginning, uh, I think that it kind of was half government and half the people. Like I was cautious that first couple of weeks because, you know, my parents are in their early 70s. My nephew has a respiratory thing. Uh, so, like, I was I was washing my hands. I was wearing a mask. And then after two, three weeks, I was like, huh, I thought, you know, that the ambulances were going to be coming to take my neighbors to the hospital, you know, all day long. Right. They, the way it was sold was that this is a, they almost had everybody thinking it was going to be like a zombie epidemic. Right. People were making jokes about it. Like the new Uh, death. Yeah. And so people naturally, if they see a threat, they're natural. They don't need a law to tell them to be careful. They need a law to tell them to stay careful after it's clear that it's not as bad as was sold, you know? Yep. Yeah. So what was, uh, uh, I would, uh, I know a lot of people have kind of made jokes about bands like rage against the machine and other people who have like been totally on board and like, didn't they do like a PSA or something encouraging people to get the vaccine or, or whatever. So like doing this, this, uh, bootlicking. (laughs) Well, well, let's talk about that because obviously I would think the aesthetic of metal, uh, and and in particular, your brand of metal kind of doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, Hey, let's do what the establishment says. Right. So like, let's analyze that. What, what have you heard? Is there a disconnect between what, other musicians in your field are saying privately versus saying publicly, is is there a big resistance to this? How long did the resistance take to get, to get going? Talk about the the differences and the debates within your, your world. Well, it is funny you bring this up because you would think the optics of the heavy metal and punk rock and hardcore crowds are rebels. And that's the 
that, that's a complete facade uh, mm. that we can absolutely say unequivocally that is a total sham at this point because most of the people in these genres absolutely just bent over and pulled their pants down for big daddy government and their marriage with giant corporations, pharmaceutical specifically right now. Um, there's a word for that when government and big business get together to screw people over. It's called fascism. Yep. And these people that you would think are totally anti-establishment, these people that sung songs and 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 sung along to bands talking about, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. And I'm anti-government, anti-establishment, anti-corporations. I think for myself, I'm an independent person. I love liberty. And what a joke. Most of the people in this genre have been so exposed by this whole thing because these even even bands for instance rage on behalf of the machine <laughs> a bunch of other bands uh punk rock bands metal bands that that talked about liberty and talked about how bad government is and talked about how bad big business is and you know thinking for yourself and really being a open-minded and, and anti-authoritarian so many of these artists and fans of these artists have completely just drank the Kool-Aid and are not thinking for themselves. They're not anti-authority. They're pro-authority. They're not anti-corporation. They're literally the biggest cheerleaders. They'll publicly fight for and on behalf of these corporations that they said that were, was the devil. Remember when uh, uh, the, the big pharma company was like jacking up the prices of AIDS medication? like seven years ago or something like that. Right. And there was that snarky dude with the slick back hair that everyone. Yeah. Hated. Martin Shkreli. I think is that guy, that the guy you're talking about? I think Martin was his name. Yeah. 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 So I remember then big pharma was the devil. And how could you ever trust these people? This, these people are so out of touch with anything good and positive. The big pharma is the devil. They are not to be trusted. How dare they? Those exact same people just a few years later when, when this whole thing comes about. Mm -hmm. Big pharma is so good. I love them. How could you ever question anything they do? <laughs> yeah. So why do you think someone would embrace an aesthetic that is anti-authoritarian but not actually be that? Like what? what and, and again, not to like hate on people but to just try to understand why, you know, why would you sing one thing and identify with that as a fan and then not be able to have that, uh, you know, why that it's cognitive dissonance, right? It's absolutely cognitive dissonance. It's double think in the classic Orwellian. Mm -hmm. sense of it. And I call these people freedom posers. These these are freedom posers. They they talked a big game, and then when it came down to actually prove what their what they say their beliefs are, they just crumbled, yeah. absolutely crumbled. And it's embarrassing to me as a member of like that community that's supposed to be anti-authoritarian and and pro-liberty and thinking for yourself and you know fuck the man and fuck all these evil corporations that's the idea people get of punk rockers and heavy metal fans and shit like that. And I'm just, I'm embarrassed. I'm appalled at, at how, at how eager people are to lick the boot of authoritarianism. 
And it's it's funny, and I'm gonna. Uh, I actually think it's funny that two of my favorites uh, from when I was 14, uh, Eric Clapton and Van Morrison, these old guys who are supposedly establishment, they're the guys who actually go out and are taking heat on this. And part of it, I think, here's the reason why. And a guy like Dave Chappelle and Joe Rogan, like all of those guys, they've got fu money, right? Like you can't touch them. Sure. And so, what does it say about our society that the only people who have the stones to get up and speak against this are the people who, you know, they've made their money, they've had their career, and, and they're unassailable? That that creative people who are still, uh, and not to disparage any of those guys, especially. Chappelle, who's still cutting edge in every way, like, you know, that other people who are still trying to create art are afraid to either they either they've bought in and have the double think, or there's a lot of them, I think, who are afraid They they see that half their fan base is saying this and they do the calculation. Do I speak out or do I just stay quiet and wait till it opens back up? And then there's a small minority of guys, not to suck up to you, but like in, in all these different genres, there's a few musicians who are willing to say, hey, this is this is wrong. But I think that says much more about our society that the artists, the people who are supposed to be on the cutting edge and saying things that are unpopular right before everybody else, they're the people that are that are when those people are afraid, then then we've got problems. Absolutely. And you just brought up a good point that I was thinking about earlier, but we, we went other places, but we're, now we're back to, I do think you're right. There's a lot of people that are afraid and, you know, I'm not the only person in my, like of my peers that's speaking out and saying something, but it's rare. It's very, very rare. There's not many, like you mentioned, Van Morrison, Eric Clapton, what other like classic rock rockers are saying anything? Yeah. Not many, not yeah. many at all. But uh, I, I notice it too with, with my peers and in my circles. Most people are quiet, and I even hear from friends and and other people that agree with what I'm saying and agree with me speaking out and agree with the ideas that I'm spreading about bodily autonomy and truly starting to wake up wake up and just like snap out of this television stupor like hey people the government is not your friend they've never been your friend and it's never been more obvious why are you still playing their game mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that i i talk to that agree with me but don't say anything because they don't want to rock the boat they don't want to upset fans they don't want to lose fans and i understand that i can absolutely understand both sides of this coin you, you don't want to lose fans. You, you want to just save face and secretly agree and be on the side of tyranny. Uh, sorry, on the side of freedom, but in secret. And when you're doing, when you're, when you're favoring freedom over tyranny secretly, it's almost as if you're, you're working on behalf of the tyranny mm. because Courage is contagious. And when more people start speaking up and saying the thing that goes against the norm, that snowballs. And yeah. more people start agreeing with that and recognizing, hey, this is like not a fringe thing to, to say or, or believe. There's actually a lot of people that agree with me on this. And I am feel comfortable now speaking out. 
that's a big reason I started speaking out about this stuff because I didn't see anyone doing it. I kept my mouth shut for about a year with all this mm-hmm. stuff. I had these same thoughts, but I didn't say anything because I didn't want to rock the boat. I didn't, but eventually there's a straw that breaks the camel's back. And, and I just couldn't hold my tongue anymore. This yeah. literally uprooted my entire life. This, this uprooted my entire career, my, my livelihood, and not just me, but millions and millions of other people. Mm-hmm. And when, when they started pushing out this, uh, this injection, this experimental injection on everybody, that's when I really started paying attention and trying to be more vocal. Like people, this is, <laughs> you guys are, you guys are waltzing, dancing right into a bear trap. Yep. Like it, you, your freedoms lost are hardly ever given back to you. Just like, uh, I think it was, it wasn't Thomas Paine. It was, uh, Patrick Henry. I think that talked about the jewel of Liberty mm-hmm. that you could guard it with jealous attitude because anyone that wants to come anywhere close to that precious jewel of Liberty, you should suspect them of the worst things. Yep. You got the quote? Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm trying to find it. Um, yeah, I think it's Patrick Henry about the precious jewel of liberty. Okay, I'll look it up and we'll find it. But like that's, to me, that's uh, uh, not only liberty, but specifically, I think, like the freedom of speech. Like it, it's, you know, the, and I don't necessarily want to get off on this because the last couple of podcasts we've talked about is like the, some of the stuff with uh, social justice that, you know, there are people who are advocating things in the name of social justice, who are openly saying, we don't want liberalism in the classical sense. Uh, We, we are against tolerance and free speech because those are tools of one group or another. So to me, that's like an automatic, like, I'm going to question every single thing about your agenda. If, if you say anything about Liberty, I'm, I'm, I'm suspicious, but when you go after freedom of speech and which is really freedom of thought, like you have poisoned the well uh, as far as me listening to your ideas, if because that says to me, you're not willing to to defend them in a fair fight and advocate them uh, on their own merits. Uh, and so uh, and especially like, again, like if you can't uh, to go back to touring, like if you can't go out and play people play in front of people, they're not going to hear, you know, it's part it's a huge part of your your business model and it's a huge part of how people actually hear you and your ideas so like that's the other thing you know so the COVID thing it's it's prevented people from getting together at bars and talking it's prevented artists uh uh, like comedians and musicians from saying what they want to say about it and then so that's the ground level but then the up top the corporate media is anybody who diverges from the uh whatever Fauci uh, or CNN says today, it's all misinformation. Like there's this, you know, from the top and from the bottom going after that freedom of speech. To me, that's the jewel of the jewel right there. And, Absolutely. It's uh, for, for a reason. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's exactly right. Um, how, uh, how are you writing about any of these things yet? I mean, I've already written about so many of these things. Yeah. <laughs> You know, speaking about free speech, like I wrote a song that's on our record before last. The album's called Conformicide. And the first song on the record is called FPC. 
and I'm sure a lot of people can figure out what that stands for. Uh, <laughs> but it's, I, I'm absolutely all about free speech. I, I think that even bad ideas should a hundred percent be allowed to be vocalized because yeah. then you put a bad idea up against a good one and yeah. everyone learns. And the yeah. person that spreads the bad ideas looks like an idiot. Yeah. I, I, we shouldn't be censoring anybody for yeah. anything. And especially like a lot of people um, among the people I was referring to earlier will say things uh, they'll start their attacks on free speech by you know, uh, people who are racist or whatever. And for someone who also opposes racism, I think that we should talk about those things and that sane people should tell those people how they're wrong rather than giving them a persecution complex. And then, so a crazy person with a bad idea, if he has to talk to rational people in the open, is not going to get very far. But if he goes to other, other sort of crazy people, disaffected people, in the corners of the internet and says, look what they won't let you talk about that. All of a sudden that's pop that, that has an appeal to certain people. And so to me, the worse the idea is, the more it should be, Hey, yeah, let's talk about that. We, we can get rid of that idea that uh, some people are better than others because of biology. Yeah. We can, we can dispose of that pretty quickly yeah. um, unless we, you know, put it way off to the side and let it incubate. Yeah, I, I, I like the idea of bad ideas being out in the open so that they can be very easily shot down by good ideas. <laughs> yeah, would you rather would you rather know that your um, that your neighbor is like a Nazi, or would you rather not know that you have a Nazi living next door to you? Right? <laughs> yeah, very very obvious. Have to know that he's a Nazi. And yeah. You know, Nazis, KKK members, all this stuff. Like, I don't agree with their stance on things. I don't agree with their ideology, but I absolutely believe that they should be allowed to vocalize their bad opinions because then their bad opinions are open season. <laughs> yeah. and, and and a lot of people, um, not only that will defeat the, the people who are the ringleaders of that stuff, but that's your chance to win back the people who have been sort of poisoned by it. Like if you engage them as a rational being, sure. that even though you might hate and, and be even be afraid of what they believe in, if you give them the courtesy, if you treat them better than they want to treat you and uh, engage with them, some of them are going to, they're going to be convicted in their heart that, Hey, I'm wrong, you know? And so that's a way that those people can be brought back to sanity uh, is, but if you, again, if you keep telling people that you can't talk about this, you're horrible. Anybody who thinks this is completely evil, then that's how, I mean, that's how you get, uh, some pretty nasty, uh, movements. But, but I think that, that, that what a lot of the COVID stuff goes to, and a lot of the people who want to attack free speech and, you know, civil rights in the, in the classical American bill of rights sense, like they do actually want to divide people and get people hating each other. And like, as a musician, like that's like everything you're against that because you want all kinds of different people to hear your music and get together. So um, I, I hope that you're the guy, the guys like you are able to, to counteract that spirit that's, that's around that 
oh, we all have to retreat to our little tribes and, and hate everybody on the other side of things. Yeah. And, and this is why I would consider myself, I don't like labels, but if I had to call myself anything, I'd call myself a free thinker because like I said, my mind is open to being changed on a dime if presented with good information that makes me change my mind. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a big thing that I, I talk about in songs and on stage in between songs sometimes is that the, the political spectrum is basically a circle. If you go far enough left or you go far enough right, eventually you're in a circle. So you wind up at the same exact asshole that wants to take all your rights away. Yeah. So, uh, I, I don't believe in, in, in either of the two major parties. I, I don't believe in, in the division. Like you're talking about the tribalism. I, I think it's very bad. I think that the things that connect us and we have in common with each other, maybe are more limited because the things that divide us all have different names and they're so numerous. The things that divide us can, you know, be enumerated all day, every day, but the things that connect us and we all have in common, maybe more limited in number, but they're so overarching. They, they absolutely eclipse all the things that we have different from each other. Yeah. Things we share in common are so huge that, uh, and that's one of the things that, sadly the media and many institutions and organizations work toward is divide and conquer because the more divided we are, the less likely we are to realize that we actually have a lot in common and our problems are mainly coming from somewhere else. We should be looking at our common enemies instead of fighting with each other. That's the number one thing that terrifies the establishment. Yep. It's not us versus them. It's the state versus you. That's why I always try to tell people. Um, And and it's not just the state versus you. It's the state versus us. Yep. Because we actually are all kind of on the same playing field when it comes to the state versus it's (laughs) what they would call their subjects. Yeah. Um, So where, where do you get um, as someone who, you know, isn't, you know, uh, a, a self labeler, and who is a free thinker, where do you get your information uh, about stuff, given the fact that most of the, the big avenues are uh, are not telling the truth or obscuring the truth, and that, you know, you know this, this sense, it's not censorship, I want to be clear on that, but the, the, it's the same attitude of the big tech sort of shaping the narrative and, you know, right down to, you know, when you type something in the search bar, just about every search engine has an agenda and you can figure it out pretty quickly. If you just use a little imagination, where do you get your information? What podcasts, journalists, uh, you know, uh, where, where do you find out what's going on and how do you piece together, uh, you know, your, uh, to try to get at the truth from, from different sources. So I get it from a lot of different places. There, there's podcasts, there's things I watch on YouTube, on BitChute, Odyssey, uh, things like that. I also follow a lot of social media pages that talk about things that the mainstream corporate media is not going to touch ever. And I'm also involved with some like group chats with other people that are of like minds. And we share information back and forth. Hey, I saw this crazy thing going on and i looked it up and it's true everyone look at this and everyone just kind of swaps news in that in that sense and that that's a good way that i get a lot of my information but 
things that people could easily look up for themselves that I find very, very valuable are like Ron Paul's Liberty Report. I think he touches on a lot of important stuff. Um, and I don't know if you are familiar with James Corbett, the Corbett Report. Uh, I think it, it faintly rings a bell. Let me, while you talk about them, let me, let me look it up. Yeah. James Corbett is a Canadian man who lives in Japan, but he is a very thorough researcher and he's extremely well-read and knows what he's talking about when he brings up a subject. If he doesn't fully understand it, he'll just, you know, put it off the table until he does learn more, but he's a very, very good journalist, oh. independent journalist. And, uh, a researcher. I, I would consider him a researcher more than a journalist. Okay. I guess there's a fine line, but th there's also people like Ben Swan, I think is great. Yep. Whitney Webb, I think is great. Um, what was that last one? Whitney Webb. Whitney Webb. Okay. Yeah, I believe she also works with the dude, Ryan from the last American vagabond. Okay. There's a ton of these people. The free thought project, I think is one of the best yep. news outlets. Um, yeah, we had uh, Jason from the Free Thought Project on a long time ago. Oh yeah, Jason's great. Yep. yep. Yeah, yeah. You should get him back on. He's he's got a lot to say about what's going on right now. I had him on my yep. ass not too long ago. And yeah. Uh, yeah, their their page. I mean, if you're on Instagram or Facebook, I think their page is one of the key ones that you should be following if you're interested in liberty and just ideas that you're not going to hear on the mainstream. The Free it's Thought Project does amazing work. They do. And it, they're like, to me, one of the textbook uh, cases of like the tech um, uh, crackdown on shaping the narrative, because like eight, 10 years ago, they their reach was much huger. Oh, like yeah. you would you, their stuff would pop up in my feed here, you know, on this platform or that platform all the time. And now, like, I sometimes forget they're there. <laughs> I got to go look because they've been buried. I don't know if they've been deplatformed from uh, any place yet, but I'm sure the algorithm and the, uh, uh, and the, I, I keep, I want to call them sensors, even though they're not technically, but they are kind of working with the government sometimes. So maybe, but like, you know, there are people at Facebook who, in addition to write the al algorithm, they, I'm sure they look at these stories and they, you know, give them the thumbs down. Okay. Let's bury this page. And, and uh free thought project is a, uh, uh, is again, that's a textbook. Uh, I, I should get him back on to, to help him, uh, explain how that happened and how, what he's seen happen to other people, especially in the last, uh, couple of years. So I'll, I'll, I'll put links to all that stuff, uh, on the show notes page as well as, uh, uh, to your stuff. Um, Tell, tell me a little bit, uh, let's talk about fun stuff, uh, before we go. Uh, well, well, first of all, what, what is up with havoc? Are you back on the road yet? Um, how, how is, uh, how's business looking? How's your art looking? And then let's talk about what you're listening to before we, we head out. Yeah. So with havoc, we, we don't really have much going on right now. Everyone's kind of doing their own thing, but we we've discussed, uh, the idea of kicking around some new tunes and maybe working out some cover songs that people would not expect us to do. So mm -hmm. we've been talking a little bit and writing. I've been writing some new music a little bit. So maybe we'll put out a new record sometime next year, or late this year. I don't know. But as of now, no touring is happening. 
things are still kind of <laughs> still kind of shaky on shaky ground. And just to be honest with you, I, I, I kind of want to, before we go out on tour again, if we have the choice of where we're playing, I want to figure out which venues didn't do any of this brown shirt, jack boot, yeah, blood eagle, armband stuff. Right. I want to know which venues never complied with any of this stuff that were actually giving a hoot about people's <laughs> bodily yeah. autonomy, their freedom, yeah. freedom of privacy. You know? Yeah, that would that would be a good project to find to log a lot of those places. Um, it's got to exist somewhere. Like, yeah, somebody send me uh, some venues in your town that yeah. where the venues didn't do any of that nonsense because those are the ones I rather support if I have a choice. And then, of course, the businesses that, you know, maybe they didn't, you know, risk. And again, I think that you're right. The people who have stood up and, you know, I've heard stories of, of restaurants and places like that across the country who never shut down, never made their employees and customers wear a mask. Some of them paid the price with fines. Some of them are probably going to uh, be fighting it out in court trying to, to uh you know, maybe it'll kill them eventually, or maybe it did, but like there are, there are probably tons of people who didn't agree with it, but out of not wanting, you know, to hope, hoping to, to wait this out, you know, they, I I know there's gotta be tons of people who have not consented to, or who could be putting on shows, but are not because they couldn't do it without the vax uh, requirement. So that that that's a thing. I think we all need to, as liberty lovers, whether you're uh, conservative, libertarian, liberal, um, or whatever label. Like I think it's important that we, when we can, um, you know, try to support those people who um, did what you what you're talking about is stand up for 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 people's rights to actually control what goes in their bodies. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, you have uh, to support those those businesses because if you don't support them, they go away. It's different than what I was saying earlier about people that are on the side of Liberty, but they're very silent about it. That's the financial and economic equivalent. Mm -hmm. You know, I really love that this business didn't shut down and I really love that they're not forcing people to show their papers and stuff, but I don't go there. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I, I hope that, uh, I, I know Tennessee where I live, um, is pretty good. Um, I know that there's a lot of shows I'm in Knoxville. Um, and I know that there's some like little things going on here. I think in some venues, um, like one of my favorite bands is a band called Dawes, D-A-W-E-S. They came and they were playing and this is about seven, eight months ago and they were playing something. It's like a, concert series like somewhat sponsored by the city or something like that and there was a mask requirement for an outdoor concert and even though they're 10 minutes from my house i didn't go and i i didn't go see bob dylan i've seen bob dylan 15 times bob dylan's you know 15 minutes from my house and i've been i haven't seen him in three years but i didn't go because i'm not going through the charade of wearing a mask um and so uh yeah, it's it's just a shame that just the experiences that people have missed out on, in addition to like the businesses, because yeah, business and making money and being able to be a touring musician is super important. But just think of all like the the cool stuff that happens at concerts, the people who would have met uh, a new girlfriend or a boyfriend or or something like that that didn't yeah. uh, because of all that. So I, I hope that uh, 
you're able to, you know, string some things together soon and maybe find uh, places that uh, can support not only, you know, letting you do your art, but who have, uh, who have been good on this issue through this. And uh, it's starting to come back alive in some places. So I, I hope that you can, uh, uh, yeah, I hope you can put something together soon. And even though I'm not um, a big fan of the genre, I'll have to come out and see if you come anywhere near Knoxville. So. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I would uh, love to have you out of the show. If, I may have to, if you ever I have seen to, out there, you definitely are welcome. Okay, I'll I'll have to wear earplugs because I'm already have lost a lot of my yeah. hearing. But <laughs> yeah. um, all right, uh, let's uh, before we go, like uh, in addition to your own music, which I'll have links to that on the show notes page. Uh, what else uh, are you listening to um, that uh, is fun and that you think that your fans uh, would would really get into? Well, um, recently I've been listening to a lot of Chet Atkins. Oh, he, yeah. I, he is from Maynardville, which I live, it's, I live North of Knoxville and the next town up is Maynardville. So like awesome, 15 minutes that was, uh, from, uh, Chet Atkins hometown. Oh yeah. Yeah. Rad. Yeah. I love tell, tell, tell people who he is for, for those who don't know. Well, he's a super sick guitarist and he, he's doing it all before, uh, heavy distortion and stuff. Absolutely shredding uh, on a thick string. Yep. And uh, my other guitar player, Reese, in Havoc, Reese Scruggs, he told me a lot about Chet Atkins that I didn't know. Like he, he was one of the OG, like recording guys in Nashville. Like yep. everybody would call up Chet Atkins to get him to play guitar on the recordings because yep. he was just a total beast. Yep. Yeah, super shredder guitarist. And, and he and ended up. He actually produced a lot. He became from a session guy. He ended up. Uh, he probably made more money as a producer uh, in his career than he did as a, as a musician, which is uh, just shows you how respected uh, he got to be in Nashville. Yeah. He's yeah. a total badass. Been listening to a lot of Chet Atkins, um, actually listening to a lot of old Michael Jackson, yep. <laughs> uh, the dangerous album. I, I threw that on. A he, he actually had some pretty hardcore guitar players uh, on some of that stuff, right? Who uh, I can't quite remember. Luke Cather, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Slash played with him. Eddie Van Halen played with him. Okay, he had a ton of badasses play guitar for him. Yeah, it's Michael Jackson. He could get like the best of anything that he was looking for. Yeah, He's unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we won't. We won't go there. Yeah, wise. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's stick to music. Yeah, it, it's a shame that all that other stuff because he was a. Yeah, he was a great musician, and uh, unfortunately, um, yeah, well, yeah, I stick to the good stuff. Listen to the good stuff about him, and and uh, pray for pray for the other stuff, I guess. Yeah, and even the other stuff, I have sincere doubts about, just because the same people that accused him of that stuff also said it didn't happen under oath. So, you know what? You're right. I shouldn't. My opinion is that maybe I could see it happening. I could also see it going the other way. I don't know. Yeah, but uh, this out of the other, the the music's great. The Dangerous yeah. album is the one I was really listening to a lot. Okay, um, it's got the Free Willy song on it. It's got. Uh, <laughs> uh, do you remember remember the time? It's, it's got some good stuff on there. But uh, and then the other thing that I've been checking out that's a more recent um, musical artist is the Fearless Flyers. Oh. They're like an instrumental funk band. 
it's dudes from the band of Wolfpack, and mm. they play just instrumental funk that's like really stripped down, lo-fi, but very tight. Excellent musicianship, and it's just I think the drummer is so lo-fi. I think the drummer literally only has a kick, a snare, and a hi hat. Okay, he has any cymbals or any toms. He might have he might have a tom, but uh, yeah, super stripped down, really cool instrumental funk music that's like pretty rock and pretty rock and roll for for funk. Okay, yeah, that's that's what I've been getting into lately. They just released some new music, so check that. I'll check it out. And uh, like I say, I'll get with you to make sure I link to the the right places for your stuff. And uh, uh, we'll uh, keep you updated on the, uh, I think, I think they're going to call it decriminalized Colorado. I think they're going to try to, and if I'm wrong on that, if it doesn't happen, I'm sorry, but I pretty sure Michael Heiss said that was going to happen. So maybe, uh, uh, yeah, I'm sure they'll need uh, musicians and uh, stuff like that to help put that across. So yeah, 100% then I'm absolutely into that. Keep me posted about that. I would like to know because if there's anything I can do to help nature be legalized, yep. uh, I'm absolutely into it. Yeah. I know uh, Angela is a big, uh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Angela is really big into your music and a lot of Mises caucus people are into uh, metal and uh, your kind of metal in particular, I think. So this will be a big thrill for them. And uh, I've actually uh, really enjoyed it. And uh uh, we'll be in touch. And, uh, like I say, I really hope to, to see you out on the road, uh, at some point soon. Hell yeah. Me too. Thanks a lot for having me Aaron. This is a pleasure. There you have it. I'd like to thank David Sanchez for his time and wisdom, uh, links to some of David's work with havoc and to his podcast riffs or die are up at the show notes page, decentralizedrevolution.com slash 72. Thanks to Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on decentralized revolution. And thanks to everyone who subscribes to our email list and gives to Mises Pack at TakeHumanAction.com. And to everyone who shares, rates, reviews, and subscribes to Decentralized Revolution. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.